Hello and welcome to How I Write, a podcast from California State University San Bernardino Writing Intensive Program. I'm Tom Gershon, Director of the Writing Intensive Program. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Ryan Hill, Professor in the Kinesiology Department here at CSUSB. Welcome, uh, Dr. Hill. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's let's get right into it. Your field, as I mentioned, is uh, kinesiology and specifically the psychosocial aspects of sports and physical activity. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so my training is in probably what is better known as sports psychology. It is kind of a different term for psychosocial aspects of sport and physical activity. Um, Really what it is, is looking at a variety of things. Uh, It looks at aspects of sport that affect performance. So we know things like confidence affects how people perform in sporting arenas. We know that anxiety affects how people perform in sporting arenas. And we also know like youth sport shapes a lot of outcomes for kids. So really the broadest definition of sport and exercise psychology thinks is kind of psychological aspects as a uh, precursor to sport. So how do these psychological things affect our sport performance, but also how does sport affect kind of our overall growth and well-being? And so um, I do it in sport. I look at it also in exercise behaviors. So uh, my training has probably most been spent on looking at groups, which works out well in sports because we have sports teams, we have exercise groups. We also have things like virtual groups now, like people ride Peloton online and, and, interact and engage with people from around the world in virtual environments while being physically active. So my main area of focus is probably in the the study of groups within sport and exercise and how that affects their outcomes uh, on a varied range in sport and both sport and exercise contexts. That's really interesting. And I I saw uh, some of your work is specifically on that sort of virtual coaching right peloton you gave the example but that how does how does virtual coaching kind of motivate people in exercise yeah we've i've been really fortunate in my training to kind of be on this i think what's going to be a leading edge of what's probably a lot more to come in the future of studying how people interact with virtual partners Mm -hmm. so a lot of my training is focused on what we call the Kohler motivation gain effect. And it is this psychological phenomenon that if you work out with someone who is in certain conditions, someone who's slightly better than you, you tend to persist longer in the task. You tend to work harder in the task. So that's a great, interesting thing to find at face value. However, if we really think about what the kind of social situations we engage with, if you're constantly losing to somebody all the time as you exercise, you might become a little demotivated, right? So what we can do is create virtual partners because the benefit of a virtual partner is I can program or I can't program it. Someone, someone smarter and with a better computer background than me can program it to interact with the participant in a certain way. So the benefit of a software generated partner is what we tend to call them. um, Virtual partners, another term is we can program them to behave in ways that will maximize the benefits of exercise. And that's what a lot of some of my recent work, a lot of my PhD work was in that. And we actually had a project that was really interesting that uh, was just published this summer that looked at 
extra game use for people using the protocol that they actually use on the International Space Station. So uh, NSBRI, which is the National Space Biomedical Research Institute, which is a research funding arm of NASA, they, uh, we did a three-year project with them and we had people come to the lab six days a week for six months and exercise with a virtual partner or without a virtual partner in different conditions. And yeah, so it's been kind of a fun ride. I've got to explore it in everything from people uh, to dyads to uh, also virtual partners. And I think that's kind of the fun part of, of being on the leading edge of this is it's a lot of interesting extrapolation to what might be happening in the future. So did you find any significant differences between the, the virtual partner groups and the non-virtual partner groups? We did on the hardest workout that people, huh. so, so it's kind of within time and within people, we look at kind of the changes across both. But what we did find was in the most difficult workout, people that had a virtual partner who was always better than them yeah. was perform better in the most difficult workout. So they were pushing themselves the hardest uh, compared to any other group. We also had a virtual partner who every once in a while, the participant would beat the virtual partner because our thinking was losing, losing six days a week for six months is going to be fairly demotivating. Yeah. Turns out we were wrong. (laughs) Uh, Turns out people really, and, and we think that a lot of that comes down to people really accept their team role, right? If your role is to be the person who is, who, who, who comes in second. And in this research paradigm, the person who comes in second is the team score. So mm-hmm. what we, what we think happened and we have some future studies to look at this is they really identified as my score is very important for the team mm-hmm. and that identity helped drive their performance. I, I play basketball and um, I, I'm a, just a really good basketball player. I'm probably one of the it was between NBA and and what I'm doing now <laughs> and um, so it's hard for me to relate exactly with having somebody better than me no I'm joking it's quite the opposite <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not very uh, I love basketball but I'm not the best but I I have noticed myself that my game is better when I'm playing with better players and and I've I've noticed that that I can sort of step it up to the level of the players around me to a certain extent, obviously, but yeah, yeah, it's a fun, yeah. And there's all sorts of actually, uh, there's interesting basketball studies as well because basketball has its own unique kind of, you know, when you're playing basketball on offense, you want to give the ball to the offense, your best offensive player, right? Your best scorer. Uh, But when you're playing defense, it very much is a much more collective team game. Right. Uh So, so teams are going to attack your weakest link. So you have this kind of flipping paradigm and there's been some really cool work in group dynamics and basketball because offense is kind of structured fundamentally different. You know, if you have LeBron on your team, you get the ball to LeBron and you hope he does the best work if you, but defensively the other team should attack your weakest player. Uh, So, so it's kind of this flipping back and forth between offense and defense. That's really quite interesting. So let's talk a bit about writing you know, the, the great majority of your research is collaborative. And I'm curious, how is that process different from what you expected, say, as an undergrad? Or, you know, how does writing collaboratively differ from ideas you may have had about what it means to be a writer? Yeah, when I was an undergrad student, uh, to be totally honest, I was often... 
I don't know if ashamed is the right word, but I was afraid to show other people what I wrote. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to like writing is a very personal thing. And the last thing I wanted to do was to show them something and, and get a bad mark on it, get a bad grade and, and have negative outcomes from that. Uh, when in reality, my experience now, as I write kind of in multiple capacities, is uh, I view other people as the gateway to making my writing better. Yeah. I used to view other people as like this hindrance for me to get a certain grade. And now I like people to get eyes on my research before it goes out to peer review. I like people to poke holes in my ideas because they're not attacking me. It was kind of a fundamental shift of like, I used to think people were attacking me personally when they would say bad things about my writing. And now mm -hmm. I go, now's a really good time to get some of this stuff out of the way. And maybe I did make an assumption that I didn't make clear in my paper. And maybe I didn't explain this overly well. And so I am very careful about how I select collaborators. I can talk a little bit about that in a little bit, but I also view people, especially experts and people that I trust and respect as really the gateway and the thing that pushes my writing to a much uh, clearer, more concise, and probably appropriate place than yeah. before. Was there a moment for you where that changed or, or, or how would you account for that? You think that change? Of yeah, I think it was a series of moments, uh, but the most memorable one, it was actually an incredibly memorable one. My master's advisor, uh, Dr. Melissa Chase, who's a, uh, she's a department chair currently at Miami university in Southern Ohio. And I really enjoyed my two years there. It was an incredible time and it really helped. I think uh, over the time of being there and of course early in my PhD training, I, I, this is probably when the biggest shifts in my thinking about my writing happened. But one particular moment was I turned in the first draft of my thesis proposal to, to my advisor, uh, Melissa Chase, and she you know, printed it out, took it home. And the next time I met with her, I remember very vividly, she had it upside down on her desk. And she said, just so you know, Chris, this is what everyone's first proposal looks like. <laughs> and I was like, that second, it was kind of like, it was the moment of like, oh man, this is going to be ugly. Um, and also like, but it was also a moment of realization, like after reflecting on it later to go, you know what, she was just trying to make my argument better, right? Like she wasn't, obviously she said it in a way that was very personal. She was like, look, don't worry. It was really like a, don't worry about this. This is not a big deal. This is how everyone's first draft of writing looks like. Yeah. It's going to get better. And so it was kind of like a, and sure enough, I flipped it over and it was very red. Um, <laughs> it was very marked up, but it also led to a much better project in the end. And, and so that was kind of my first most memorable experience, but it's definitely not something I think you can just shift right away. I think it does come with more and more writing over time and really thinking about the best way you work. And, and for me, really, it's collaboratively. I, I, I really prefer to do it collaboratively because I feel like other people elevate my work. I wonder if there's something to that kind of in parallel to what you were saying with, with the way that virtual coaches uh, or virtual partners can motivate people when they exercise, when they feel like they're contributing to a team. I wonder if there's something parallel happening where on the one hand you're thinking you're realizing that I'm not going to be able to do this completely on my own and be successful. And two, 
I'm part now as a discipline, as somebody really engaging in a discipline, I'm part of something greater than just myself, right? I'm, an, I'm part of a larger conversation, a larger team. Yeah, I think there's some interesting work actually in, in our literature in sport and exercise psychology it, that, and I could be butchering this if anyone's listening to this and they hear <laughs> this, uh, don't write too angry at me, uh, but it, it's this idea of social identity, right? And we create these social identities as we go through the world. So in sport, it's studied as like, do, am I a part of this team? Do I, is my identity tied to the development of this team or the outcomes of this team? And I think when you start to identify more as like a, an important person within a scientific discipline and not that I think I'm an important, but like I do identify as someone who's helping move progress in a certain scientific discipline forward. Absolutely. And I think that that when people criticize me or my, they criticize my work, I don't take it as a criticism of me anymore uh, because I do think that for the most part, people are really trying to go, Hey, we can make this better. Yeah. We should strive to do that. Right. Like we, we know that there's not like a perfect written thing. Uh, We can always improve. We can always make it better. and, And that comes with some downsides because you can get stuck in the kind of constant revision. But I think when you kind of realize that critiques aren't, personal most of the time i do think there are exceptions that happen but most of the time critiques are there to improve not to to belittle you mentioned before that you're careful about how you go about the writing projects especially when you're working collaboratively can you tell me you know a little bit more about your writing process how do you typically go about starting a new project yeah i i have a couple of collaborators i work quite a bit with uh, Steve Salmondinger's one. We work really well together. We did our, our PhD studies together. And I've learned a lot through working with other people about how I go about doing things. I'm really purposeful about picking out writing time. And it's really non-negotiable to me. Like it is blocked off in my calendar of I write this at least, and I really aim for about an hour a day. I think that that's an important part of creating good habits around writing. So I'm really good at initial, I I think I'm good. (laughs) Some people might disagree. I think I'm really good at getting a first draft down. I think a lot of people struggle with like the, how do I sit down and do this? Like, what is the best argument here? I'm really good at going, okay, this is the idea I have in my head. I know that this might not be the final product. I'm very sure it won't be, and it will need significant adjustments, but I'm very comfortable with getting down a, a a string of ideas in a good first draft form. My main collaborator, Steve is really good at cleaning up my ideas. So we work really well in tandem because I'm really good at getting a lot down. He pokes some holes. He cleans up some of my stuff. He's probably a better technical writer than I am. And because we kind of view it as a shared process, I think it works really well for us. I often write too much. He pairs it down. It's, it's, it's really kind of a back and forth to it. But, but I think the biggest thing that I do to get projects started to answer that part of your question is I dedicate time to writing. I do it almost daily. Uh, some weekend days I don't write, but I would say actually more weekend days than not, I do write. And I, make a plan before I sit down. So I don't just open up a word document and stare at it and hope that the great idea comes. But like normally the day before I write down like, Hey, here's where I stopped on this writing project. Or if I'm starting a new project, I'll say, here's where I want to start. 
this is the literature I need to discuss. This is what I need to do. And it's really just a couple lines in a notebook that I have. And then from that, I look at it. I know it's my writing time and I start to put words to paper. And I find that, you know, I, I saw this somewhere online the other day. If someone said you know, the best words that you never, it was, I'm butchering this, but it's <laughs> the best words that you never wrote are not any good. But what is so much better is the words that you did write that are just okay, because right. it gives you a starting point. It gives you the place to kind of work from and improve that. And so I think dedicating time going into it with some sort of plan is probably the two things that help me the most. Yeah. That's sort of that remind, just to go back to basketball for a second, that reminds me of uh, the quote attributed, I think to Michael Jordan, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Right. Yeah. Uh, I totally agree. Like the perfect idea you have in your head doesn't necessarily, and, and, and at least in the work that, that we do in academia, doesn't really mean anything, right? Like it has to be communicated in some way, shape and form. And, and really the medium that happens most frequently in our work is, is writing. Yeah, you got to put it out there. So, so you, you start with a plan for what you want to accomplish that day or the next day. And you make sure you have a dedicated time that you put in and you just make sure you write during that whole time. Uh, I wonder, do you think having a collaborator as you're writing, in other words, as you're writing in the back of your mind, you know, well, you know what? I think you said Steve, right? Or yeah. it could be another collaborator. This person's going to look at this too, right? So I can, I don't have to worry so much about stopping and going back and second guessing myself. And I can just get everything out there because I know this is step one in a much larger process. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually, the other day we, we had something, a paper accepted a couple of weeks ago and I was just kind of doing some cleanup in my, in my files on my computer because I like to keep everything relatively tidy. And I was just, I was like, I'm curious how many drafts we did of this paper. Yeah. And I was really genuinely curious. So the number of drafts from when that idea was conceived to when we submitted to the first journal was 12, I believe. We had a reject at that journal. We did four more rounds of revision just between myself uh, and, and two other collaborators. We did four more rounds of revision using the reviewer comments. We submitted to a second journal. It was another, it was a revise and resubmit, but we were never going to satisfy the reviewer comments. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. kind of hurdles that were never going to be jumped over. And then we'd sent it to another journal where we, did I think another four rounds of revision before it got there and we had a revise and resubmit and we did one, we did three rounds of revisions to wrap up the revise and resubmit and now it's accepted. And so I think it's just like a, that's a very normal process for at least in, in, in my field to go through what I think was just under 25 total revisions that I had my eyes on at some point. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that's definitely part of the process that I, if you would have yeah. asked like young, young scholar me, like I was no way I'm going to do 25 <laughs> versions of this paper, but now I've just kind of become very comfortable with it. Yeah. And um, you have to, I think you have to be careful about how much time you spend in those because sometimes those revisions aren't really adding anything to what I would call like the meat of the paper. But, you know, there's always stuff that can, 
it, it can be adjusted and, and changed. And I think viewing it as a fluid process is probably more helpful than, oh, I wrote the thing, I'm done. Now, that, that reminds me of a really a well-known study, in, early study in writing studies uh, by Pearl, the composing processes of unskilled college writers. Uh, that might be slightly different than the actual title, but something like that. Uh, and one of the things that study finds is that the writers that she labels as sort of unskilled in the study spend a lot of time going back on the sentence level. They'll write a sentence or half a sentence and they'll go back and check it for grammar. And they end up being really kind of circular in the way that they're viewing their work. And, and it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive that as you know how imperfect your draft will be, you actually can write with more confidence. You can just say, oh, well, that's okay, right? I'm going to skip this, or I'm going to put a placeholder here, or, you know, insert brilliant idea here, right? And just keep going uh, to, to get something down on paper. Absolutely. I think that that's a really, and I, I saw someone the other day that I generally like what they write online suggested that when it's part of their writing process, they actually turn off spell check. Because yeah. as you write, you see the little red squiggle underneath your your word. And it's really hard for our brains to not focus on that. But if you're really trying to work through like developing ideas and thinking about things in, a, in an order that makes sense to your reader, I think in a lot of cases, it's probably best that you just ignore that for a little while and write the next thing you're thinking, move on to the next point. Because if you go and correct a bunch of spelling errors, you might lose where you were going with that. And sometimes where you were going with that might not have been the best thing in the world. But also I find that when I don't jump back and forth and I just kind of let it happen, it, it really leads to a better overall end product. And then at the end, I turn on spell check and I fix my errors and life is good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, in, in just talking about that one article over the summer, uh, you mentioned a couple of rejections and uh you know that's part of the writing process right especially if you're in academia uh you're gonna get rejections you're gonna get revised and resubmits which is a very positive response right which is i don't know maybe different also than what you were expecting or was it difficult for you to handle maybe your first rejection let me ask it that way yeah i think my first rejection it was like what do you mean you don't think that this is adequate or good enough to be in this journal and it was very yeah, it was very kind of jarring. It, it was very, I, I spent a lot of time, I put a lot of energy into it and it was just rejected and it seemed like they didn't get it. And again, that's something that after you have a couple of rejections, it's just, it's part of the process. And I think you, it's up to everyone kind of in the world to think about what that rejection in your own writing process looks like and how to build from that. And, you know, one of the things that I jokingly do with, with, Steve, my, my main collaborator is we normally give ourselves about 24 to 48 hours to be like really mad at the reviewers, <laughs> right? Like we just have like this emotional reaction of like, Oh, I can't believe they didn't understand this. Like what's wrong with them. And then you start to read what they say for about the third or fourth time. And you go, okay, I could see why that might be something that you don't love. Uh, and then you kind of work through their points. And, and I think if you give yourself, in my opinion, if you give yourself that time to kind of be upset with them and just then kind of come back to it and go, you know what, I'm going to deal with this very matter of factly, then I think 
you're going to end up in a better place. And I think I learned that through my training in my PhD with my advisor, uh, Deb Feltz. She was incredible at really helping me realize that it's, again, it's not a personal thing. It's part of the process. And, you know, she's a very accomplished, she's now uh, retired and I think she's got over 200 articles published. And when she would get a rejection, it was very much like she wasn't happy, but it was also, you wouldn't be able to tell a change in demeanor based on that day. And I think that that was a really telling thing. And, you know, I would ask her, I actually asked her multiple times, like how many, you know, some of these papers. And she was like, you would never guess how many, you know, this paper here was the fifth journal it went to. I think one of her most cited papers was rejected by three journals before it got in, you know? And so these stories kind of help reinforce the idea that you're not alone in rejection. You shouldn't let rejection get you too down at a personal level because it happens to the best of the best. Absolutely. Uh, And, and, and I think just coming to terms with the fact that it happens to everybody is, is comforting in a way. It's a weird comfort, but it's comforting in a way. Well, yeah, no, I mean, you know, even there's so many stories of well-known writers, famous writers uh, and, and famous novels that have been rejected and, and, you know, Moby Dick, uh, had a terrible time and, and uh, terrible reviews when it was first published and, and it was only rediscovered as, as what, how we perceive it today much, much later. Those kinds of stories, I think, can be comforting to, to all of us uh, who are writers, right, who are writing. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm not a big, you know, I, I don't think that this is super... Uh, I, telling about my own writing, but that paper I've talked the most about during our our conversation today, it actually ended up in a journal that is considered more prestigious than the first two journals I sent it to. It's just, you know, like in, in the reviewers at that journal thought very highly of it and they were really largely impressed in it with it. And the first two were very negative. And I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, if you're trying to write a, a, you know, I'm not familiar with like the book publishing world, but I would imagine that you would send a a manuscript of a book to an editor and Mm -hmm. it's a person. It's just a person. It's not like they send it to a hundred. It's not like they send it to 200 and you get some general, no, like with, with my manuscript, it's often two to four reviewers. And I have to just consider that it's two people in the world who do or don't like something. And I think if, if you approach it from that perspective, then you know, there's two more people out there that are definitely going to like it and find value in it. I think that's great. I think that's so helpful. Uh, I wonder if you've ever shared any of those stories with your students, maybe a student that wasn't happy with the grade that, that they were getting or, or was struggling with some aspect. I definitely share that with students. I, I really make a point in class to highlight a bad grade is not an indictment of you. It's not an indictment of you as a person. Definitely not that. It's definitely an indictment, not an indictment of you as a student. Like it's just a grade. It's a thing that has to happen for assessment purposes. That's why I give lots of opportunities for assessment. And I often try to make a point to talk to students who have done poorly on an exam or on a first assignment to just say, look, this is, this is part of it. Like you're going to get a job and one day your boss is not going to be happy with what you did. You're going to go through life and you're going to have people who want different things and, and might in whatever context you're in, give you a bad mark or give you a poor evaluation. And I try to make the point that it's so much, you know, there's a kind of sports psychology, people have these kind of corny sayings, but it's, uh, you know, often people say, 
don't react, respond. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, the first thing you do is a reaction, right? Like you don't think about it. It's just what happens. If you react to a bad grade, you're going to go, oh, this this professor doesn't like me or this test wasn't fair and they didn't do that. But you could respond to that where you say like, okay, you know what? Maybe I didn't understand this material. Maybe I should go to office hours. Maybe I should raise my hand more in class sessions to make sure I'm getting what I what I need out of the class session. And I think that students that respond tend to do much better in courses and they tend to learn that feedback is not, and it's not something about them. It's something about Mm -hmm. the product they made that one time. And it's not something that has to continue throughout the course of the class or their educational career. It's just something that they can learn from if they, if they want to take the lessons from it. You know, in my classes, I, I really put an emphasis on revision, right? Because just as we've been talking about, if I can, if I can give my students the opportunity to learn that there, that, that the work of writing is so much in revision, right? And not in that draft, not in that first draft, but in the multiple going over that that's when the writing really kind of takes hold. Uh, If I can give my students an opportunity to learn that in my classes, that's I think of, of a lot of importance. Yeah. And I think, you know, framing the revision process as just part of the learning process is so important there. I used to think you you probably wouldn't have liked undergraduate me uh, as a, as a student in composition very much, but I, you know, I so much thought revision was like, Oh no, all my ideas are fine. It's just, I missed a couple commas and I misspelled some stuff and, you know, and I think reframing it to go like, this is a comprehensive look at something in a way to make it better becomes really important. And like you said, so much, I would guess, I mean, my, it probably took me that last paper I published this summer. I would guess of all the time I dedicated to it, that 5% or so of it was in the first draft. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. 95% yeah. of the work of that paper was in revision. Yeah. And, and I think like, I didn't, I've never thought about it in that way until we're having this conversation, but that's kind of a really powerful thing. Like, and I, I think that should help take students, help students take the pressure off the first draft too. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to come out perfect because it's not going to be. Speaking of reattempts and, and changing, uh, how have you been forced, if at all, to adapt your writing process or your approach to teaching writing you know, during this, this pandemic? Yeah, the writing process has become a little more challenging for me, uh, but it's also part of the challenge I think has driven me to some even better actionable changes. So I have a small toddler at home. Mm-hmm. I am not uh, currently allowed to go to my office and do any amount of work. I can go and grab books, but I can't even sit there for 30 minutes and write. So I think I've even become during the pandemic, I, I kind of had to sit with myself and go, what do I want to make out of this? Right? Like I can complain about it, which of course there, there's a lot of negative circumstances, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm quite lucky. And now I have to write when I hear a little toddler running around downstairs and um, it's not my perfect writing environment. It's one that I wish I could change. I often wish I could go to a coffee shop or a field or (laughs) any place where there's not trucks playing and, um, and, and right. But you know, it is what it is. And so I think I've even had to become more purposeful about it. And, you know, that writing time is my writing time. And I'm really lucky to have a a, a supportive wife who's, we, we split the day almost Mm -hmm. like right down the middle. And, 
you know, when it's time to write, it's really time to write because my, my time frame to get stuff done has become even shorter. My yeah. work day has become shorter. And for my own personal writing, it's been a challenge at the beginning, but I think it's all about kind of finding your rhythm and what works for you in the writing process. And for me, it's sitting down daily and, and dedicating myself to it. And some days are great. And the writing is, you know, I think it's a pretty good product and some days it's a bit of a struggle, but that's kind of with anything, right? Like you, you played basketball, every practice you didn't go, you went and practiced wasn't good. You know, there were days mine were, were but for other people <laughs> of course, of yeah. course. <laughs> but you know like it, it's it's just like anything else in life right like you can't expect everything to always the stars to always align it's gonna Absolutely. writing is just like anything else and if i you know you can complain about it and and of course it's not optimal but the time frame got shorter and sometimes I write into the night where I prefer normally to to put my work away and, and enjoy a little bit of television. But um, it's just part of the 2020 uh, living through a pandemic that That's it's a minor sacrifice for me to make in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. A lot of the boundaries are kind of breaking down where, you know, this would be sort of, this is my work space. And this is my personal space and this is my time and this is family time and this is my personal time that's sort of getting all blurry and and there's a lot of overlap now with those with those boundaries to kind of question how many of those boundaries need to be there to begin with you know sure sure so. yeah and and you know to your i think you asked this in your original question but like i i talk a lot to students about that right mm -hmm. like it's you know, your education is something that's really exciting. And this is, of course, not education as any student would have wanted it in an ideal circumstance. But like, it's, it's, it's really important for future outcomes that you take as much away from the college experience as possible. And, you know, even skills around things like managing time. I know it's like not a fun or sexy thing to talk about, but it's a really important life skill. Absolutely. I see people that are really accomplished in their fields that haven't figured out how to balance the time around their lives. And they really struggle with like things like happiness and, yeah. and general life satisfaction yeah. and, you know, learning some basic skills like that are a really valuable thing. And I spend a lot of time in my courses right now outlining, Hey, this is a, this is a thing you really got to carve out time for. And yeah. it might be a weird time. It might be a not, not your perfect time, but you got to carve out time for it to do it well. Uh, Dr. Hill, this was uh, such an interesting, great conversation. Uh, really a great first run. Uh, we, we'll go back now and, and uh, put down the real, record the real uh, interview. <laughs> no. uh, I'm joking, of course. But uh, no, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for doing this, for talking with me. I really had a great time and, and learned a lot about uh, your approach, but also really a lot of general things about got me thinking about collaborative writing and, and how that differs from writing as an individual or single author uh, and, and really how we can use that in the classroom too. So thank you very Absolutely. much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. How I Write is a production of California State University San Bernardino's Writing Intensive Program. Music by Kinsas Morera and Emmett Fenn. Thanks for listening.